I always see it as a bit like an exhibit in an art gallery. If we look at it from one angle, we see one thing. But if we move our position and look at it from another position, we often see something else that we didn't see at first. Right. Something new becomes revealed right. when we shift our positions. I think it's the same when we relate to ourselves, that we often get stuck in just one way of looking at ourselves and our life story. But if we shifted to another position, then we might see something different. And I think there's no change without shifting position mm. or shifting perspective. I don't think any change ever happens unless we shift our perspectives. This conversation touches quite lightly on issues such as adoption, dementia, trauma, anxiety, depression and mental health in general and has a lot of discussion of therapy. I was adopted at birth and I had all through my childhood and adolescence and into my 30s, I was operating with a name which was not the name that I have now. And then one day my dad, my adoptive father, said, oh, I found this thing in the bureau. Maybe you should have a look at it. It's like an official document. He brought out this thing, which was basically an original birth certificate. And I had a different name on this certificate, which was Andre. And so after a few years of thinking about it, I, through Depot, took that name back for me that was like reclaiming something that had been lost from my earliest beginnings my origin story hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together i need to get better please make me better i want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Andre. Hello, Andre. Hello, good to be here. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's funny, isn't it? Because you're saying you're saying it's good to be here, which you mean obviously the podcast. Yeah. But uh, but I'm in your home, so yes. so you, so it's a it's a place you're often in in that respect. Um, and I'm I'm very pleased to be here to have in you response. Here. So yeah, the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? So I know you through the Spark Storytelling Gathering. That's I've been to a few times in London, and I've seen you uh, kind of host those gatherings sometimes and MC them, and heard you tell stories at them, and that's that's a, quite a strong point of connection for me because I'm. I'm really interested in not just telling stories, but hearing other people's stories right. and thinking about storytelling. Yeah, right. And and me too. I mean, I'm I'm always interested in in thinking about storytelling. I mean, I was yeah. I guess I was interested in that even before I started hosting a storytelling night. But now I'm particularly interested in it. You know me from Spark, I, where I host. Uh, a true storytelling night on the second Monday of the month at the Hackney Attic. You've come to that and told some stories there. Mm. And, you know, I heard your stories a few times uh, and you came with Azariah, a friend that we that we both know. Yeah, yeah, he invited me to come along to it. I don't think I knew anything about it until he invited me along. And then first night I came, I thought, wow, this is, this is not like anything else I've been to. Right. It felt very warm and supportive and like a community, essentially. And I'm interested in communities because I, I work in different types of communities, learning communities, spiritual communities, and therapeutic communities right. in the past as well. Yeah. So it was really interesting to see people doing something quite profound, I thought, which yes. is sharing their their stories and being supported 
massively in doing that without criticism or judgment. That's a rare thing, I think. I agree. I mean, I think it's what gives Spark its kind of unique feel, I think. There are other true storytelling nights around, and they're great too. I'm never going to do down any other place where storytelling is celebrated, but one of the things we do at Spark is we don't have a competition element. We kind of treat all stories as equal, and all people as equal. They get up on stage, they have the same amount of time, they get to say their piece, whatever their piece is. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that, that that's something that the you as an audience member are also picking up on that's how I feel when I do it and you've told a few stories there and because of that as well I contacted you and also Azariah who I've already mentioned Mm. uh, to get you to talk about from the perspective of kind of talking about being priests I guess Mm. uh, for my other podcast The Family Tree so I I, I already feel like I know a lot a lot about you already from those stories from Mm -hmm. and from those audio recordings that you sent us in but I'm sure there's plenty more to learn really because that's how people are and also my memory won't be as as brilliant as as all that so I'll I'll relearn a lot of the things about you and I'm of course now thinking what did I say in those things (laughs) I can't remember much about them actually said now so right which is probably for the best we don't want to be kind of uh feel like we we need to like avoid things we've said before because it's nice to just let the, Mm. the conversation flow so the second question that i ask everybody is what do you do now yeah well this is this is a this is the sort of question my hairdresser sometimes asks me right so what have you been doing this week and i almost feel like giving them a bullet point list of multiple choice that they could choose from because it's never one thing with me. So to give you an idea in a typical week, maybe, um, I'm usually teaching uh, at least one day a week in a theological college, and that's teaching people in counselling and psychology, but within a kind of Christian spirituality framework. So I do that usually about once a week uh, for a day. (laughs) <laughs> so that's one thing I'm doing. Uh, another thing I'm I'm doing most weeks is therapy. So I have a small private practice as a psychotherapist, and I see individuals, couples, and sometimes families. I'm what's called a systemic therapist, which means and we could perhaps talk more about this, but essentially it means looking at how people relate to each other. So that's another thing I do, and I'm usually writing at some point during the week. And that could be working on a film script or a PhD piece of work because I'm doing a doctorate at the moment. Wow, you're really fitting a lot of things in. A lot of things in, a lot of things in. So timetabling for me is crucial. Right. Or I can really sort of lose my way through these different shifts in role, actually, that I have to do during the week. Right. I mean, shifts in role is an interesting... It's an interesting phrase, really. I mean, I, I think I know, I think I've got an idea of what that means or like what it what it means to me when I think about how I shift roles because I, mm. I have what they call a portfolio mm. freelance career, which means I don't get paid for doing lots of different kinds of things. Yeah. And I can think about how I move between, you know, different roles. But your roles that you occupy are quite authoritative in some ways or like mm, uh, or kind of are about how people relate to you a little bit more than my roles so when I'm editing audio uh, it's about how I uh, mm. shift my role uh, whereas I guess the times when I may have a similar kind of experience of putting myself into a role is like when I go to, to host Spark and I become the host of Spark for the night mm. or when I um, when I do 
podcast training and I become a, a podcast trainer, you know, and that, those, that's like you becoming a teacher or becoming a therapist or whatever, I guess. Mm. That's a really interesting thing to think about because I think for me, I'm sometimes curating or hosting ideas and other people's stories and hopefully creating a safe space, particularly in, say, a therapeutic environment to hear people's stories being told and lived out. And for me, my role is as a host to that, to create a safe place for that to happen in. Right, so very analogous, really, with what I'm trying to do when I'm hosting Spark. I think so. Yeah. I think there's a lot to do with hospitality in, in what I do generally. I hope that I'm hosting ideas and new perspectives when even when I'm teaching and I try to be pretty receptive to what students are giving me in my classes it's more like a dialogue than a monologue right so it's a conversation between ideas that I'm bringing and having space for students to react and talk back to those as well so a lot of what I'm doing I think is hosting and then the other part of it I think is performative that I've always had an interest in performance. Right. And I think I am certainly performing different roles as I go through the week. Yes, teaching is a performative kind of thing. Right. Uh, I used to be an actor, so I was literally performing on a stage, (laughs) on an actual stage. Went to drama school and sort of studied performance. Before that, I used to be in a rock band. and (laughs) So I was always interested in performance and getting on a stage. Now... That could be at one extreme just blatant narcissism (laughs) or a a need to be seen. Or perhaps I think more recently that it's also like the stuff in me that I should be sharing with the world and that, you know, why keep it back? Why be quiet? Why not share it and then talk about it? Right. And and again, writing is a a different kind of way of doing that too. It's not... not performance in the same way like my partner is a writer I'm a writer but she does not like to perform whereas I do Mm. so there's different kinds of writing Mm. writing doesn't have to be performative but it can be and it can also certainly be a way of teaching of communicating I guess of performing acts of kind of therapy in some ways personally and for the reader right Mm. I mean would you would you agree with well I think it's I think it's there's different things happen in writing I think some of it is a bit rhetorical which is to persuade to put forward an argument or to persuade around a point of view that I might be putting forward but often particularly in academic writing I think I'm again hosting a lot of different ideas that I have sort of found and sort of chewing these over with the with the reader and hopefully that's actually more like a dialogue with the reader that the reader can bring themselves into what I've written and find something of themselves in what they're reading. Right. I mean, well, I mean, I think of all all art as a dialogue to a certain Mm. extent and certainly... Like, I am i don't think of this show as an interview show. I think of it as a conversation show because I, I'm more interested in dialogue than I am in, in, in me just sitting here and kind of getting you to speak in sound bites and then using it, which is what I think of as, as interviews. Also, interviewers have an authoritative position that I don't like to occupy. Yes. Even though I'm steering this conversation, if you bring up whatever, then I will go with you. If, you know, I will go in the direction that you want to go in. Yeah, um, which I guess, and, and you know, and weirdly, I, I, I definitely have had kind of 
not not every conversation is like this, but I've definitely had people who I've spoken to on on this show who at the end have said, "Oh, it's it's like it's like being in therapy." Yeah, like, and, yeah. and and so I kind of see in some of what I do a little bit of that kind of thing, but also in terms of my own personal journey, I've kind of self-diagnosed myself and worked with myself, and actually, I I think of doing this show as a form of therapy for me mm-hmm. as well as for sometimes for the guests mm. and maybe for the audience too for the wider audience the wider listener too sometimes you know well i guess that's what happens in any dialogue for me it's you hear yourself back in the dialogue you find something more about yourself as you talk to other people and hear their responses and see how they're looking like you're looking at me now right, right. so you know depending on how you look at me and respond to me now will probably influence what I might say or not say next, because right. uh, if I feel you were, which you're not, judging me or kind of being critical, then I'm going to likely as not close down a bit, say less, edit myself more. Whereas if I receive a kind of warm, welcoming response, which I think you know you're, you're giving me now, <laughs> <laughs> it's more likely I will just say more stuff because it's again like I was saying with therapy, it's a safe space to to share in right and it's interesting the idea of safe spaces i mean i again working in performance is another area where safe spaces Mm. are really considered particularly you know i've done a show about masculinity and my relationship with that and and it was very important to me to make that a safe space as much as possible for myself too i mean i'm i'm being very vulnerable in that show Mm. and i'm interested in art making art now i used to be interested in in making art that kind of messed stuff up you know like shocked shock Mm. factor Mm. Uh, but now I'm much more interested in the idea of care than shock you know and there's a great essay actually by a a poet called Harry Giles called Shock and Care uh, which is about reimagining performance spaces uh, as 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 places where we're 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 thinking of the idea of caring of community of building these kind of things that often many of us feel are lacking or, 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 or in danger at the moment within wider society. I, th- I, I think I, I kind of engaged with that a while ago when I was acting particularly because I started out being very keen on convincing the audience that I was brilliant <laughs> and getting them to applaud me right, as much right, as right. possible. And so therefore what I did was I in my preparing and rehearsing I was just thinking about what I was doing the lines I was going to say where I was going to be on stage what I was trying to get across and it was a very sort of to be honest quite an inward focused quite narcissistic way of going about things right and then one day I was reading a book by the great Russian uh, drama teacher Stanislavski and he was suggesting essentially to relax and to forget yourself Right. And I don't know how I did it, but somehow one night when I went on stage, I stopped predicting what I was going to do, and I just kind of started listening to other people. So everything I said or did was just a reaction to what the other people were doing. So then I was aware of the other actors, but also I became aware of the other people in the audience. So for me, I went from this kind of steamroller approach of convincing people of my brilliance to an open, more hospitable approach, which was really more about listening and picking up on the cues of other people and just responding quite naturally with my lines. 
And that, for me, was a life lesson of some sort. Right. That I thought, hang on, there's a dialogue going on here, a genuine dialogue, even though we all know what the lines are going to be. Even in that heightened environment, it felt like a really genuine human-to-human interaction. Right. And so, for me, that's that's kind of something I'm linking with what you were saying about creating safe spaces for comfort or or for for something new to emerge, but not through perhaps just shock and awe, but uh, a kind of listening to each other. Right. And it, well, it's also it's interesting for me. My kind of journey as a performer, if you like, has been. You know, from being tr- being somebody who, when I did performance, I was being other people like you, like yeah. I was acting, yeah. to being myself on stage and learning to be myself comfortably. Because when I first started hosting, and I wasn't hosting uh, Spark back then, I think I first started with a show called Stand Up Tragedy that I also ran for a few years. It's in hiatus now; it may come back, but not for the, not for the foreseeable future, unless someone wants to pay me for it. <laughs> but like when I first started hosting that, I was and I made the audience feel awkward because of the fact that I was uncomfortable with myself, right? right. Whereas I've learned since then to be as awkward, to not lose my awkwardness, but to be comfortable with my awkwardness. And that puts the audience at ease. Yeah. And also then the audience kind of see their, their own awkwardness within my awkwardness. Like oh everyone's yeah. given permission to just oh, yeah. not be slick, to, to, to be kind of messy and awkward and sort of stumble through the world. And then actually that can create a really safe, Environment. It's a, it's it's a very big surprise to me that, that to to have discovered that 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 actually becoming comfortable with my discomfort has, has has opened up spaces to me has made rooms much more kind of things I can work in a way that I never could before I before I did that. You know? I, I would say that I'm still learning to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Me too. Probably. You know, it's 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 um. It's an occupational hazard for me to try to be entertaining. Right. But, <laughs> all times pretty much well not at all times but if I'm on a stage anyway right and and I've realised and I think Spark actually helped me a bit with this that it wasn't about putting on a show or being entertaining right it was about just telling a truthful story yeah whatever that meant and however it was received and whatever it looked like well that's that corresponds with something I've disco- discovered or observed about true storytelling over the years I used to think when I first came to true storytelling I thought you know a good true story is all about having a great narrative it's about having a a, a loads of twists and turns and unusual experience and don't get me wrong those are great stories but actually what I've come to realise is a successful true story is as much about character as it is about plot and if somebody just gets up and shows you who they are they can be talking about such a mundane thing in fact I remember you did a story once about your mobile phone your relationship with your oh, mobile gosh, phone yeah. and that was a, a, about a trivial mundane thing but it showed us your character it showed us the stakes around that phone were were big enough for us to care even yes. though even though they, they were small stakes but they were big emotional stakes and that's an interesting thing yeah I, I went to a workshop a few years ago with Theatre to Complicite and it was a clowning workshop and all I had to do in one exercise was turn around and see the audience looking at me that's all I had to do right. just turn around and clock that the audience were looking at me and it was so interesting the desire to do something funny or entertaining the 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 absolute 
I've got to do something. And every time I did, the instructor was saying, just, just don't worry about that. Just do it and find out what happens. And in a way, after a while, I managed to sort of strip back to just being surprised genuinely by the audience and there being space for us to discover each other without me imposing some kind of performance on top of it. Right. So it was was essentially a kind of mutual discovery of each other that was not based on entertaining each other, pleasing each other, some sort of agenda that was altering a normal, hello, uh, I'm here, you're there. Ah. What do we do now? <laughs> it was quite a lesson, really. Yeah, no, I, 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 it's an interesting thing, holding the space, you know, not filling it. And that's my natural reaction is to fill gaps. Like, mm. one of the reasons I started this podcast in the first place was to learn to listen to people better. Because I'm someone who, I don't like to be alone with my thoughts, so I'll fill up everything with my my with my with with, with my thoughts because when i'm speaking i'm still there that they are my thoughts but i'm so afraid of like the inside of my head that i will make sound like I, i'm not someone who can sit in silence uh, although i try to be like I, i'm improving at that i'm yeah. working on that that's yeah. the thing yeah uh, that i would like to improve on so i can i can relate to that it feels like to me that sort of strands that are running through all of the different things that you are doing at the moment um, you could say like dialogue uh, and storytelling, they seem yeah. to be two big strands. It seems to me a third strand is something to do with spir- spirituality, right? Yeah. So, I mean, when I, when I, when I talk to people, I, I often say, you know, when did writing come into your life? Or when did, uh, or I ask my builder friend, when did building come into your life? Because I wanted to treat that the same as you would treat a writing. Yeah. Um, so when did spirituality come into your life? Oh, right. So I think... I have to go back to my earliest memories here and the first time I remember doing something spiritual mm. I was sitting in a teepee tent in my garden in Epsom and praying, not praying exactly, chatting with God and when I say chatting it was more like a monologue of a shopping list of things I wanted him to do for me. I was about six or seven. Right. And I wanted him to give me more friends at school. <laughs> I wanted him to stop my parents pestering me to do my homework. I wanted to get a pet. We didn't have a pet at the time. It was that kind of shopping list. And my parents took me to a kind of rather old-fashioned Anglican church a few times a year. And through my early childhood, I, I associated religion or spirituality with people dressed in strange costumes saying incomprehensible things right. in a place that was nothing like the rest of the world so that caught my attention because I was my imagination was fired by that no understanding of what they were on about but I just liked the symbolism and the sort of performative aspects of it maybe right uh, another big influence on me was reading the C.S. Lewis Narnia stories. Right. Now that was that was like um, a huge bomb going off in my imagination as I encountered this world which 
I wouldn't even have described as Christian at the time. I, now I know he was writing a Christian allegory. To add our eyes, it can sometimes be too obvious, the analogy. Yeah. But, but, I, but I didn't pick up on it myself when I, when I read those books as a child too, so yeah. yeah. I somehow felt the spirituality in them and responded to that underlying echo that I think was his, his spiritual way of writing, really. And then, yeah, I didn't have any connection really with sort of formal religion at all until I was about 16. And then my parents took me to a church because they thought it would be good for us for some kind of moral instruction. <laughs> I think they were worried that we were going, me and my brother were going to go off the rails or something. Right, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so they took us to the church hoping they would sort us out somehow. <laughs> right. Um, and it turned out that... Yeah, although I kind of didn't like it very much to start with and found it really embarrassing to be part of this this group of other young people who were talking about God and stuff. I just couldn't really connect to that. That over a couple of years, I did sort of warm up to it and then found, yeah, this was something I wanted to dive into more. And that was really the start of it all. Right. So you're, I mean, so now you're teaching, you're teaching theology. Yeah. Is that right? And but before that, you 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 became a priest, right? You are an ordained priest, right? Is yeah, that right. Yeah, in the Church of in, England, right? And people are like, I, uh, people can listen back to Azariah's episode as well to hear about uh, about this sort of thing. But one thing that I commented on in that was that people don't really are, a lot of people aren't even aware that the Church of England has priests. I think okay. like the, the idea that yeah. like priest is something that people who are not that familiar with kind of religion kind of imagined to be catholic only or like yeah. we know about catholic priests but we don't know yeah. about church of england priests so what is what is how did you come to be one and and what is one right oh wow this is quite a, quite a, a big, big question big question this uh how did i become a priest in the church of england well i think i was always from that age of 16, 17, really fascinated with what it meant to live in a community of people who were grappling with the questions of life, death, spirituality, God, whatever we want to call it. And I became more and more kind of convinced in myself that the next step for me in that journey was to sort of cross over and become a leader in the church. And Sometimes that would be called a minister or a pastor, but it could also be called a priest. And to be honest, because the Church of England is so diverse and such a broad kind of spectrum, uh, some people would definitely not want to be called priests and some people would be. Right, and there's vicars as well. And there's vicars, which is more of a kind of formal title for the person who's in charge of the church. Right, I see. And a priest is more, using a big word, I suppose, ontological kind of am I in my essence a priest or am I in my essence a minister or a pastor vicar is more like the job title right okay so I I kind of pursued this and actually got rejected from joining the Church of England to be uh, trained for ministry because they thought uh, this is when I was in my 30s I suppose they thought that I'd really got a bit lost in terms of understanding uh, the importance of the basics, as they saw it. I was probably more preoccupied with drama and therapy and a lot of stuff that, while relevant, was not exactly theologically sort of strong enough 
right for them. Y- useful bells and whistles but not the, but not the, not core, the core of what thing. they what they thought it was yeah, yeah so I, I i had to deal with disappointments of being turned down to start with right um and i thought well i'll never darken the doors of the church of england again and then about 10 years passed and i was in a curry house talking to a friend of mine who was a an ordained vicar and he was saying, you know, have you ever had any dreams that didn't come true? And I said, well, there was a thing about 10 years ago about joining the church and being a, a, a vicar in the Church of England. And he said, well, if I can help you in any way to resurrect that dream, resurrection, quite a good Christian imagery, right. uh, then, then I'll help you out if you think you want to go back and try again. And I'd never thought I'd go back and try again. But it sparked something in me to look at that one more time. So I did, and bizarrely, after a very short period of time, I was accepted and I was in training. And it happened just incredibly easily that I was I was welcomed back with open arms to train as a as a vicar. I mean, do you think there was a change within the church between in those ten years, or a change within you? Or I both? think there was a change within me for certain. Which is that I was, uh, I was probably a bit more clear about who I was, a little bit more clear. I think that's always an evolving thing, but right. I probably was clearer that I wanted to do work that would be enabling to other people to grow spiritually. Now, that was enough to be sort of in line with the idea of being a vicar. Funnily enough, what's turned out is that I haven't, in fact, gone on to practice as a a vicar running a church or something. I am technically a priest because I've been ordained, which means I've been gone to a a cathedral and had a bishop say, you are now a priest, and so I'm officially a priest in the church. But as soon as I got ordained everything went sideways <laughs> and I didn't I thought oh I'll be running a church for the rest of my life and having a dog collar and all that kind of thing and uh, I got the dog collar but I didn't get the running the church bit so what happened was there was no churches that had jobs basically when I'd finished my training and so I was literally thinking I have no idea what I'm going to do in my life now because it was all about this thing I was going to become a vicar so I, um, I, one day, a, a, a guy who I was seeing for spiritual direction to help me pray and stuff said he had a mate who was into psychology and into uh, Christianity, and maybe I should just go and have coffee with him. So I went and saw this guy who turned out to be like a professor in a theological college. And I looked at his bookshelf and I thought, you've got all the same books that I've got about psychology and personal transformation and Christianity and the mashup between these things. And at the end of talking to him, he said, there's a job going here. Are you interested in maybe teaching in this college? So I thought, well, why not? I've right. got nothing else to do. Uh, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Never taught in higher education in my life. Um, never never been to the college before uh, and I got the job <laughs> <laughs> and spent six years teaching counselling and theology to people and so before before that moment were you already a therapist as well? yes yeah, so I was a therapist from quite early 
this is I hope this is not too kind of mind-blowingly complicated. It is for me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> my career has been a winding road of, let's say, ther- therapy, the church, and drama and performance. There's actually three strands probably right. that are intersecting. Yeah, I'm doing a kind of strange movement with my hands, dear listeners. Yeah, he is. It's good. Which um, doesn't really come across. It's, well, it's, it's funny you say that. The, the, I often think that body language, it does come across in audio form okay. in certain kinds of ways. I always like it when the people I'm in conversation with are physical in, in their movement. Mm. Um, but yeah, so from that dance, we had these three strands. So there was yeah. the church strands, and then there's been the kind of performance drama strand uh, training as an actor and and then writing for film and theatre but the third strand uh, which has been strong and was probably the first to get going was the whole area of therapy and mental health and I started out at the age of 19 um, taking a year out from going to university and working in a local psychiatric hospital just to bridge that gap before I went off to uni. And I started work as a nursing assistant, um, untrained nurse, working on a psychogeriatric ward. Wow. Which was really, um, like, basically like going to another planet uh, and, like, nothing I'd ever experienced before mm-hmm. uh, because it was people at the most kind of extreme end of, of dementia that I was working with. And anyway, there was something about that environment and the questions that it brought up about what it means to be a human being and to think and how do we manage feelings and psychiatric issues that got me so fascinated. I decided to train as a mental health nurse. So I didn't go to university. I trained as a mental health nurse for three years and gradually after that I went through different areas of psychological health in the NHS and at the Priory in the end and uh, that led to me uh, having my own practice eventually and training as a therapist. Right and did so and drama came somewhere in those years? Yes it did. So you are trained in that too right? Yes so I I, um, did two trainings Mm. back to back which were both postgraduate one year courses and the first one was in drama therapy and then I went on and did an acting course right. for a year as straight afterwards. Right. So for me, that was a fascinating blend of drama as, an, as a means of therapeutic help for people to express what's going on and find new ways of being into just full-on acting training where I was doing that all of the time. Right. And I, I always thought that there was a big link between an unexploited link, actually, between drama and mental health. And drama therapy probably was the bridge that that helped me put it all together. Because even now, and a lot of my writing at the moment, is about how improvisation and enacted storytelling could be a way for people to have another outlet for expressing who they are, Mm -hmm. but also to play around with some other personas and other roles that they could be. Right, Because we get so stuck in our kind of boxes of who we think we are or who other people told us that we are, that it needs something, I think, quite literally dramatic to enable us to step out of those things and try something else. And for me personally, I found that drama is a very immediate way of of doing that. Therapy does it in its own way as well, but 
drama is like we can just shift roles by putting a different hat on, right. literally a different yeah, hat yeah. or a different costume, and we're someone else immediately. Right. And that is, for me, really intriguing that we can shift our personas that easily in drama workshops and yet get stuck for years and years struggling with the same old stuff in our everyday personas. Right, yeah. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense and, and rings true with with my my experiences and and my observations really i mean i think and and e- i mean even what i'm doing now uh, true storytelling quite often is still a form of drama yeah. and like one of the things i think is therapeutic about tra- telling true stories is that you get to be the author of your own story you get to retell your experiences mm. uh, and then and you get to choose how to frame them uh, edit and them. edit them yeah. and you also and you also get to sort of tell tell it you know where you're the you've lived to tell the tale you know, when you're experiencing, like a lot of my stories are often about traumatic experiences in my teens or in my home life. Uh, and in those moments, I won't have felt like the future was going to be possible. And now I can tell those stories from the future with the future perspective on the events that happened, you know, back then. Oh, well, that, that really chimes with something I think about trauma and storytelling, because I, I think I've had sort of what would classically be called traumatic events in my early life, I found that I can retell and retell those stories and that in the telling of that story, something changes in me and my relationship to that event. Mm -hmm. In a way, that trauma doesn't dictate to me who I am and what I can and can't do anymore. It's sort of freed up a bit by the telling of it in a story. So, for example, I was um, a story I often tell. I don't think I've told it at Spark but I forget, to be honest, is um, that I was adopted at birth and I had, all through my childhood and adolescence and into my 30s, I was operating with a name which was not the name that I have now and the name was William or Bill. And everybody knew me as William or Bill and I grew up with that and as far as I knew, that was it. And then one day my dad, my adoptive father, said, oh, I found this thing in the bureau. Maybe you should have a look at it. It's like an official document. So I said, oh, okay." And he brought out this thing, which was basically an original birth certificate, pre my adoption certificate, which would have been when I was a few weeks old. But when I was born, I think all babies have to be given Mm -hmm. a name and some kind of certification. And I had a different name on this certificate, which was Andre which is the name I go under now. And I thought, wow, that is such a cool name and that really represents who I am far better than Bill. It sounds more creative. It sounds more exotic in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Might even have an accent. I think it did have an accent on it, which right. is really exotic. Right. Um, and so after a few years of thinking about it, I, through Deepol, took that name back and for me, that was like reclaiming something that had been lost from my earliest beginnings, my origin story. Right. And so as I tell that story, and I've told that story a few times, I, I each time I tell it, it's reinforcing the power and the strength of my origins. Yeah. Whereas it's very easy for people who are adopted to tell a very negative kind of... And I did too. I often told a very... I'm wounded and broken because I was adopted and I wasn't wanted and expected right, to be rejected right, at right, every turn. Right. And I've lived that story out <laughs> yeah. quite heavily. And, uh, 
you know, I, I think it does come back even now. It's not like it's completely gone. But through the telling of the story as a, as a, as a thing of gaining strength or reclaiming something beautiful, it's literally shifting my old, very negative stories about being adopted. Right. And, and did you, like, so did you know you were adopted all your, all your childhood or did you just suddenly no. discover it? So I was told that I was adopted when I was 17. Right. Uh, so my mum, my adoptive mum died when I was about 16, 17. And then quite soon after, my dad sat me down and told me I was adopted, which was, funnily enough, more of a relief than a shock because it made sense of a few things. I can understand that. I wish I'd been... Like, I think if, if, I, if, I, if I look back at my childhood, if, if I... If, if I'd been told that my mum wasn't my mum, I'd be very happy about that. Yeah. Um, not 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 to say I, I would be happy that. now. Yeah. Um, but I might have been happy then, and so I guess you at least got that. Like you got like I don't feel like things work. Oh, that's this because is why. that's why. Yeah. Which I think, ironically, a lot of people who are adopted do find that they fit in really well as well, and they don't have that kind of sure association. Yeah. 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 And equally, as I've as I've kind of alluded to, plenty of people who aren't adopted don't feel like they fit in their family so it's a complicated yeah. one yeah but i mean it's 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 the narrative that we make that, exactly. that helps us or hinders us yes yeah. and i think in a way learning about mental health and psychiatry at a very young age in some ways was maybe less than helpful because it meant that i could pull a lot of stuff out of textbooks right that proved i was in a bigger mess than i thought i was <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm very familiar with that process. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you go, oh, that's me, that's me, yeah, that's me. Yeah. I've got all that. <clears throat> oh, no, I'm really messed up, aren't I? <laughs> and I think I did, to some extent, tell that story. And I went into quite detailed analytic therapy for a while where I, I was getting therapy. And in, in a way, that, that sort of deepened that sense of not only am I in a mess, I now know that there's lots of reasons why I'm in a mess. Right. And the detail of my mess is clearer to me now. Therefore, the journey to get out of this looks a lot longer than it used to. Right. Although it's like, it's an interesting process that, isn't it? Like, I guess I've, I've been in that kind of a, a pl- place the last, say, five years or something of my life. Of, I've been opening out the mess. Like, I've been finding the reasons why I'm a mess. Yes. And yeah. initially, it's really daunting because you get more things. Like, as you say, you can see more steps that you're going to have to cl- climb up. But it, but it also is very helpful in a different way in that you, you, you start to understand what's why you on. are and what's going yeah, on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's... I mean, I, w- I would definitely say that as a therapist anyway, that half the battle is understanding what's going on and why things are happening the way they've turned out. And that itself is pretty therapeutic. But for me, I, I think there was an element of turning that information into another stick to beat myself with. Yes, and, I, and, and I've definitely done that. And no. then you have to learn how to not do that as well as learn all the other things that you're already trying to learn. It's quite a complicated process, isn't it, trying to improve yeah. yourself or work yourself out? Yes, yes, it is, <laughs> it is, it is. And I, I'd say it takes sometimes takes a bit longer than you might have expected. Indeed. I was talking about therapy with my partner, in fact. Well, not just therapy, because I... A bit about you know about mental health and uh, us together understanding uh, my situation better, both of us now. And I was saying, like, it's funny because you always... You, you always say two steps forward, one step back, right? That's what we 
traditionally say whereas I was thinking like it'd just be much more positive if instead we said like one step back two steps forwards yeah like there's no reason why we have to look put the focus on the one on the on the yeah. negative in that like yeah. it's actually like although it's a hard process it's it can be seen as a positive one you're still moving forwards oh yeah absolutely you know, the I, I think that one of the one of the sort of beliefs I suppose I've developed over the years is it's it's almost essential to do the one step back right because especially with you know moving in the self-help kind of medium which I also operate in sometimes there is this kind of idea that it's just the big leap forward right without really much reference to where you've come from or the context for where things are at now it's more kind of just just leap over into the you that you could be Whereas I, I, I've come to the belief that without the step back, whether it's through mindfulness or meditation or whatever it is that helps us settle back into who who we are at this moment in this point in time, right, right. without that kind of earthing and grounding, then we, it's very easy just to jump off and and be kind of disconnected from ourselves almost as we leap into the next great thing right and i think i've tried that a few times i've done i've had a few probably more than a few moments where i've jumped off into the next big thing and had a great idea but i haven't done that preparatory thing first of stepping back and checking in with where am i really what do i really feel about doing this am i really okay with it um, maybe I don't want to do it really. I just think I ought to do something. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think if we do that first, then actually the two steps forward are on much more solid ground. Right. So that's why I would say, even in a drama process or in an enactment improv kind of sort of milieu, it's quite important to check in with where we are at the beginning and not just leap straight into it head first. And that's perhaps through doing sort of physical warm-ups or breathing or something to earth us back into where we are at this moment in time so that when we move, we're, we're, all of us is moving as one. We're, we're kind of really committing wholeheartedly into the action that we're taking. Right. Because yeah. um, I've had a lot of experiences of the, the story of the Wind in the Willows and Toad of Toad Hall, who's always got a great scheme that he's going to do. <laughs> and he gets a, a car and right. then he smashes his car right. up and then he gets up and thinks, well, I'll get a better car. And I think for me, in my life, it's been quite easy to rush into the next shiny big idea and for it not to really quite work out. And then you've got the disappointment and... The, right. the car crash sometimes to deal with and then you kind of so I think it is good to start with where we are yeah and to appreciate what's happening now before we sort of go to the next two steps no absolutely and and two words that came up when we were sort of talking uh before we started recording about things that we might talk about mm. uh were uh, transformation and change mm. and and I mean I can see like when we're talking about all these different strands of your of your kind of interests in your life, I can see why those those words would have uh, resonance and importance to you. Why did you suggest that we that we focused on them specifically? Well, I think all of these different areas, whether it's spirituality, whether it's um, mental health and therapy, whether it's performance or teaching, writing, whatever the area is, I'm always interested in in. How can I put it? Moments 
of shift or moments where something changes. Mm. And I think because partly I've experienced that in either being in therapy or being in a role, if I'm acting, or telling a story. And oftentimes I think the shift and the transformation comes as we shift our relationship to our own previous story. Often I think as we tell it, we go, oh, that's what happened. I hadn't thought of it quite like this before. And we kind of take another perspective on our perhaps very old and well-tried narratives that we've been living with and I I also happen to think it's quite easy to get very stuck in these stories about ourselves and about the way the world is and about the way other people are and a lot of my work as a therapist is probably or as a coach is to help people untangle from those stories to see how those stories are affecting them and and then move into something else But I think, as I was just saying earlier, I suppose, the first thing for me in transformation is landing where I am now. I don't think I can really change, and I don't think we can generally change if we don't land into where we are now. And in a way, that might be the first step of change. Right, interesting. Is to just land where we are now. There's a lot in the culture that says, just just jump off into this, this wonderful new thing. You know, if you try this thing, it'll be great and everything will be wonderful. But it's not telling us much about where we are now, because that might be a bit of a mess. It might be a bit kind of all over the place. Yeah. But in fact, it's also reality. And so for me, transformation is essentially a three-stage process, if I was talking about it technically. And this three-stage process can be seen in any, pretty much any narrative film or theatre piece and in a lot of kind of narrative-driven stories. And it starts with where I am now. You know, the first scene in a film is often the hero going through something in their day-to-day life, which is the things are as they normally are. We kind of anchor everything from that moment of where they live, what's going on around them, their friends, what they're, what they're talking about, what they're wearing, what they look like. Where we are now, I think, is stage one of transformation, Stage two is often, you know, where something happens, like writers might call that an inciting incident or something, but something kind of weird happens or something out of left field comes in and suddenly things become more challenging and we've now got to deal with something that wasn't there before. And for me, that kind of escalating challenge of shifting and having to shift role to deal with whatever life is throwing at us it's kind of like the middle action sort of sequence inside a lot of narratives. Right. You know, oh, this was this happened, so then I did this. Or because this went on, therefore I did this. Right. And that's, for me, that's endlessly fascinating is how people deal with stuff. Um, and then the final bit, I suppose, is the more kind of becoming reorientated to life being a bit different because there's been a shift. However small that shift might be, uh, maybe I've got used to wearing different clothes. A few years ago, somebody took me to Marks and Spencers and said, you need to sharpen up your image a bit. <laughs> <laughs> What's gone wrong, you might say, looking at me now. But um, um, and at that time, I was probably doing a bit more corporate stuff or something. Yeah. And they were. I think they were right that I needed to sharpen it up a little bit. But wearing the different clothes was quite transformational for me 
because I was wearing shoes with points on and I was wearing a shirt and maybe a tie was involved, I don't know. <laughs> but it was like so different yeah. to feel that costume on me because it is, I think, a kind of costume. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so that's a small change in a way, but a bit like with the phone story of shifting my phone from an, a, 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 a smartphone into a, a little tiny brick phone. Right. Which I've still got you with still me. still got, yeah, so yeah, yeah. See it. These little things are quite big things, and they are real, genuine shifts in our narrative. And that's what I'm interested in, in transformation. Right. In narrative terms, those three stages are basically... Uh, exposition, complication, and resolution. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. And that's it's interesting because I, I, in my personal life, I'm very tempted too often, I think, to to seek a permanent resolution, if you like, like a solution, mm. like a, a, a. And it's it's nice to think of it in narrative terms. Like the end of a film doesn't mean there can't be a sequel. Doesn't mean there can't be another story that Absolutely. happens afterwards. You know? I mean, the guard, the guardians of the galaxy have had to go out and save the galaxy again. Right, right, right. In, in part two, that's out now. Indeed. So um, yeah, I think that reorientation, kind of settling down thing at the end of the narrative is just the beginning of the next narrative. Right, right, right. So it's more like a circular spinning thing that just never really, maybe never stops. Right. Um, but I, I know what you mean. It's it's very, very appealing, the idea of, okay, now we can settle down and something might, have, might be resolved yeah, now and yeah, life yeah. will be okay. But in my experience, there's always something else. Right, exactly. I mean, my ambition now is to not think like that. It's not always yeah. my achievement, yeah. but yeah. it's definitely my ambition. And and also like change and like changing in this in this kind of way like what what you were saying about when you're in a mess is often when you decide to change. Mm. Uh and it's funny like I can see what you mean about having to step back first because what happens when people are in a mess and they try to change is they don't change at all. They think they're changing, mm. but they just move from being in a mess to being in a mess with a different Somewhere hat else. on, yeah. you know? Um, and, 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 and so that's, a, that's definitely something that I've found that, the, that I think I have changed a lot. And the changes that I've, I've been through, the different versions of, versions of me, the changes have happened when I've not, been making a dramatic uh, attempt yeah. to change my life. Mm. They've been like five years later. I've realised I've completely changed my views on this thing, or mm. you know, it's been a gradual, slow, slow mm. uh, process. And the moment, I guess, what if that's what you're saying is that the moment I've noticed the change is when the narrative is kind of shift. Those moments where I'm like, ah, I, yeah. I'm in a different place than I thought I was, that's, and I'm a different person than I thought I was. Those kind of moments. That's really really I think important for me in the spiritual end of the spectrum as well right because I kind of grew up in a version of Christianity and not all Christianities like this but in an evangelical sort of uh, flavored Christianity right which put a lot of stock on the idea of a sudden and immediate transformation right which would have language like being born again yeah. wrapped around right. it um, or being a new creation that's another kind of phrase I mean from the Bible and I was really confused for quite a long time, for years, about why that hadn't happened for me and why I seemed to be in just as big a mess after I said the prayer of commitment right. to what I was before. And that went on for years. And I thought, there must be something wrong with me that 
this this thing hasn't happened yet. I'm still doing the same thing as I did before, still thinking about life in the same way. So I, I think because that's happening, I took a route into being in therapy quite a bit to try and unpack it that way. But this is something I'm not sure my evangelical brethren always face up to, which is when we say the prayer and when we get born again, as it were, things don't always change. Sometimes the mess carries on. In fact, in my experience, it absolutely carried on for years and years and years and years. And so now I look back at the journey and I do see, as you're saying, some incremental changes have happened. And I put some of that down to therapy, some of it down to my spiritual journey, some of it down to friends and people I've been hanging out with. A whole mixture of things. And I'm quite open to the idea that God is kind of dancing through all of that and that spirituality and the flow of something spiritual is actually underpinning all of that. But it's not been a dramatic and sudden kind of lights all being turned on and everything's what do you do? Right. I mean that corresponds with my experience, and and I've, I've I'm still I've still got a way to go. I mean you 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 were you were you were describing your kind of initial uh, journey to try and uh, become a priest yeah. as being in your thirties. I'm thirty five now, so I've still got like a lot of uh, like I'm sure that, it, that this is another thing I've noticed that every five years, not as literal as that, but every version of me looks back and like feels like, oh, I know myself so much better now mm. than then. Mm. And I'm hopefully, I'll know myself better in five years, you know. Mm. But I mean, certainly mm. what I find, one of the things that Facebook uh, reminds me all the time, and I guess that won't happen to you as much now you've changed your smartphone to, to an old school one, but like, it comes up with uh, memories. Like, it tells you what you, uh, what oh, you did right. five years ago, what oh, you did yeah. one year ago, what yeah. you said. And I'm like... You know, sometimes my own words five years ago are like, who is this person? I don't agree with yeah. anything I'm saying. I don't like that phrase. I don't like that that yeah. that version of me. But I, I kind of take heart in that in a weird way because it shows I have changed. And it shows that it shows that the, the, the things I don't like about myself now may have changed in five years as well, you know? And, and what I like about that is that you're in a dialogue with your previous self, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I think is pretty help, helpful because, for me, dialogue is, whether it's with aspects of ourself right. or something we wrote years ago or with somebody else or, you know, for me, with God... That, that that dialogic kind of approach, I think for me, is where a lot of the transformation and change happens as we kind of have these debates and stuff with other voices, mm. even our previous own right, voice. Right, right, right. Uh, and think, oh, I, I don't think I, I'm not there anymore, but where am I then? Right. So if it's not that, what do I think now? And so these kind of incoming voices, whether it's through Facebook or other people or ourselves in the yeah. past, I think they act as quite helpful conversation partners as we kind of grow and the, that for me is part of the transformation is dialogue yeah I don't know if transformation I don't even know if it happens outside of some kind of dialogue right and when you're t- so you were talking about uh, right at the beginning you were saying the kind of therapy that you do is systemic right yeah yeah and and that is about kind of facilitating dialogues right between yeah. other people not just you and the yeah and, the, and the, the client or the therapeutic subject but also couples therapy i guess yeah. is what you're talking yeah. about family therapy yeah like do you want to say a little bit more about systemic uh yeah well i, I like a few things in my life i seem to have just fallen into it because i um 
I knew at one stage I wanted to do some therapy training and I just looked at the back of The Guardian and saw a course in psychotherapy and applied for it. I had no idea that it was systemic and what that even meant. But it turned out to be fantastic because it meant that it was kind of looking at what happens inside people and their origin stories and how they attached or didn't attach to people growing up. But it particularly looked at how people dialogued with each other and with themselves. And the narratives, I mean, there's an aspect of it called narrative therapy, the narratives people would tell and then live out about themselves or about them as a couple or as a family. Because I think you can have a narrative as a family or as a couple just as much as an individual that is kind of being perpetually lived out. Right. So a lot of couples therapy, I think, is, for example, looking at an alternative way of telling the story about us as a couple. Right. So we don't just have to replay this same thing where he says this and they say that and we go backwards and forwards in the same old, same old. So this kind of therapy is very big on asking questions, on making interventions and suggestions and dialoguing. It's not me sitting back going quiet and waiting for the person to come to their own conclusions or occasionally pronouncing some uh, and uttering forth some wonderful piece of wisdom. It's much more kind of dialogue-based, conversational. And really the idea behind it all is to to help people have a different dialogue with themselves, actually, so that they... I always see it as a bit like an exhibit in an art gallery where if we look at it from one angle, we see one thing. But if we move our position and look at it from another position, we often see something else that we didn't see at first. Right. Something new becomes revealed right. when we shift our positions. And I think it's the same when we relate to ourselves that we often get stuck in just one way of looking at ourselves and our life story. But if we shifted to another position, um, then we might see something different. So, for example, just to give a simple example, if a couple comes to see me and they just argue all the time, you you have to wonder why are they together. So sometimes I ask, what was it that brought you together? And the atmosphere in the room often just changes in a second as they start to remember, hang on, we there was something wonderful about this other person right. when I first met them and they'd forgot they've now forgotten it. But that was there back at that point. And by doing that they've shifted their position and they're looking at their relationship from a different point of view. And therein discovering something that may have got buried or lost or covered over. It's still valid and it could be resurrected and brought back. Um So for me, a lot of it is to do with, in systemic therapy, with shifting positions on ourselves, other people. And I think there's no change without shifting position Mm. or shifting perspective. I don't think any change ever happens unless we shift our perspectives. That's really interesting. One thing that I haven't asked the origin story of is the writing element, the the writing strand. When did that first come into your mind? I was kind of inspired to write by these early stories that I read as a child, particularly C.S. Lewis, and I remember trying to write a bit then. I also wrote songs quite a lot when I was younger, when I was a teenager. Um, 
which I performed in a band. Right, I mean, do you, you've got a piano in your in your front room, and do mm. you play the piano then? Funnily enough, I don't, but my kids, I've got three kids, ah, right. uh, they all play the piano. Right, so do you, do you play an instrument at all? Or do I play you... guitar. Right, so yeah. you, you were writing songs on the guitar as yeah. a teenager? Yeah, I was writing songs and singing and playing guitar in my own band, which I called the Big Fun Band. It seemed quite a cool thing to say in the in the eighties. Doesn't so. sound bad. I mean, it's hard. I think my my, my teenage band we never got we never had a name because we just never could agree on it. We had like <laughs> different versions of names at different times. But I think it's a good idea to just grab a name and then you don't have to continue or worry about what the name is. Yeah. yeah. So, so 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 I started out with uh, that kind of I suppose creative writing. And then I always wrote a journal, so I was always kind of writing out my thoughts about films I'd seen or about stuff I'd realised or read about. And I've done that pretty much since I was about uh, 15, actually. I've always had some kind of journaling on the go. And more recently, about six years ago, I wrote a play, which was the first time I'd done that. And it, it went quite well, it got well-reviewed in Time Out and stuff, so I decided to carry on and do some more writing for short films. So I've done a few short films in recent years. And more recently, on the creative side, I've been working on proposals and ideas for sort of feature films right. and stuff like that. The other sorts of writing I do is probably more, and I'm doing this at the moment, is I'm writing a book that would really be for... I suppose the self-help market, putting it that way, but very much articulating these ideas I've been growing all these years Mm -hmm. about transformation and change and how we can break out of the boxes that we've got stuck in uh, in terms of narratives about ourselves. And that's that's the piece of work I'm most uh, focused on at the moment. And self-help's a complicated area, isn't it? Because a lot of people are very suspicious of self-help. And I think there is some self-help which it's justified to be suspicious of. Absolutely. But there's also some amazing stuff out there as well. I mean, I think, you know, the, to, to write off a complete kind of area of Genre. any kind of human expression yeah. Yeah. is a mistake. And I, I guess as someone who's now got an official diagnosis from a, an official, but uh, before that I diagnosed myself and, you know, I don't quite agree with the official one, but at least I, I agree with it to a certain extent like I've got I've been diagnosed as having anxiety disorder whereas I think I've got depression and anxiety but at least mm. I've got the official stamp for half of it yeah um so yeah. so so my own self-help process had some validity yeah uh, and it's now been validity has been stamped by the by the official di- uh, diagnosis so yeah. yeah it's a tricky one to know how to because people operate so much in genres and categorisation <laughs> right, right, these right. days. So uh, I also have a lot of reservations about the self-help market. Right. Um, it's just I don't know what else to, to pigeonhole it, it yeah, as. Yeah, I know, really. yeah. I mean, it's, it's wisdom literature, maybe. Right. Or uh, sort of wisdom writing. A lot of it is, as I say, drawn from all the things we've been talking right, about. Right, absolutely. Another kind of area that self-help kind of treads over is kind of memoir and, and, as you say, wisdom. We don't sort of say that people shouldn't impart the things that they've learned in their life to the, to the, to the upcoming generation. In a way, self-help, that's one of the things that that genre does. And you're right, like, genres are really hard, uh, especially mm. when you're writing, like, like you know, 
I love things that I call magical realist, mm. but some people, the words magical realism just uh, put like, it's like fingers down a blackboard. <laughs> They're like, oh no, I didn't want to have anything to do with that. And it's mm. like, well, yeah, okay, but there's a lot you're missing out on if you just kind of, not, you know, science fiction is the same, right? Or mm. like fantasy is the same. Like yeah. Anything where people, or, or even like crime, there's a lot of people who don't like crime, uh, who won't read any crime. And there might be, a crime book out there that would be something they would love mm. and engage with. So yeah. Mm. So yeah, but I mean, I thought I would, I would expand that just because I didn't want people to be turned off by the words. So yeah. 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 Thank you. I'm quite turned off by it most of the time. Myself. <laughs> uh, but, so yeah. let's call it wisdom. literature. Right. I like, I think wisdom literature is a, a, another phrase that is, it's good, but I like, I like it. I can see what it means, but I, I bet that's going to alienate some other people. So you're working on screenplays mostly, as well as as well as, well as kind of wisdom literature. What attracted you to screen? Was it because yeah. you did a play? That was an interesting thing, and I made the decision quite in, instinctively and intuitively. I, I didn't reason it out particularly. But after I'd written the play, I definitely had um, a decision to make because there was an audience then for me writing a second play because the first one had gone quite well and it had, considering it was on the Fringe Theatre in London, it had done really, really well because right. we didn't lose money. Right. Which that is, is a, very a, a, unlikely. an amazing achievement. Yeah. And, and um, <laughs> there was certain amounts of enthusiasm for me doing a, a follow-up or, or something else. And in my own perverse sort of way, <laughs> that made me more determined not to do another one. <laughs> so I thought, yeah, no, I'll do a film now. <laughs> and I thought, I'd try my hands at this more visual medium. Right. I think that's one of the things I've learned since then over the years is that it is such a visual medium, that the writing is different in that the writing incorporates a visual language right. as well as the sort of the words and I certainly wouldn't rule out going back into theatre. And yeah. I, I do, I do think that's likely that in the next few years I'll do another theatre piece. I mean, it's an interesting thing because it's like it's actually it's easier to get produced yeah. if you're writing for theatre. Yeah. I think, yeah. even though it's yeah. it, it may cost you a lot or it may like uh, be mm. a lot of work to get it done, you can kind of do it on your own to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, you can find people who will help you do it. Whereas yeah. film is is a harder so thing out. to work. In. Film is so far out financially. Yeah. you can't do it without serious production support. Right, um, and yeah, it's been great to write. I've written sitcom pilots, and I've written some comedy stuff, and I've written, but none of it's been produced. It is so much harder to get that stuff produced if it's if it's for film or tv right and it's there's a certain like because i've got a lot of things that fulfill this criteria it's it's very sort of sad to have written a thing and then it not actually yeah. happen like yeah. i've got you know novels or uh plays that i've never had produced that are like you know will always be like well uh, you know it i did all that work I, I made that story and then nobody nobody heard it yes the end of it. so i can uh, you know i I'm very, I'm very familiar with that. And these days, I sort of try not to write anything that doesn't have a an end point in in Where mind. Where will be know? seen? Somehow. Yeah, yeah. But then that said, I do think it's incredibly valuable to write, regardless of an audience, sometimes or to, or or you know, and also you never know when a thing you've written a while ago will, you know become relevant will become have an opportunity to become something new uh, so it's always mm. worth it yes um but it's a it's a kind of writing is yeah it's interesting that you sort of t it's interesting to me to see that you sort of don't did did plays which are easier to get produced and then you were like mm. nope i'm gonna go into <laughs> go to even harder 
thing and which is not to say it's easy to get plays produced it's not I mean that's a hard thing to do too and I've done it a bit myself at the beginning of my of my career I sort of started a theatre company at uni and then like of, of recent years I have occasionally written plays but I haven't tried to get them yeah produced oh, it's a major major thing to do yeah I mean I produced the thing that I put on and I yeah I had to get thousands of pounds in from various places and yeah yeah, you have to pay everything up front. It's 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 quite stressful. Well, yeah, I mean, making a podcast drama series like I've done like last year is is similar. Like you can't do that for cheap. No. Like even though you can because it's DIY and it's podcasting, mm. and I can use a mic as kind of cheap and uh, flimsy as that one on the table there. Like it, it's still uh, like you start to pay performers if you want to be a decent human being and Absolutely. all those sorts of things, and the money just you know racks up. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's. Just just audio so once you put that visual element there's so many more considerations but yeah this conversation certainly reminded me about this idea that does crop up sometimes about doing another version a longer version of the play i did before right which is which is probably where i would go next with it is is a two two act rather than one act piece of work exciting Watch this space. Well, well, and, and it's been a, it's been a real pleasure sitting here in your front room, uh, getting better acquainted with you. I always like the ones where I come to someone's house because it means uh, on the journey home, my mind can kind of like mm. allow all the ideas to sort of coalesce into some kind of understanding. But it's definitely been making me think about a lot of things. This conversation. The last question that I ask everybody is: Do you have anything to plug? Yeah, I'm working on this book, which is essentially about the idea of breaking out of old restrictive patterns of living it might be called breakout or something like that and I'll be looking for probably publishing agents and publishers and all that kind of thing in the next six months I should right. think so anyone out there who's into <laughs> any of that that could help me that would be great other than that my stuff can be found on my website so I've got a few blogs up on www.andreradmal which is r-a-d-m-a-l-l dot co dot uk my twitter feed is at radmal andre <laughs> and uh, yeah that's, that's it. and are you are you and Azariah still doing uh, the shape so we're podcast? still doing the shape yeah we've we recorded a podcast just recently actually so that's at the shapeshifters dot org excellent well Thank you very much for having me in your home. Uh, the, the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye. I'm also working on series two of The Family Tree, me and my partner, Jen. Look out for more Family Tree. And if you haven't heard the first series, it's all there uh, over on the website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, all the places that podcasts go to hang out. So you can listen to that show from the beginning. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook and you can find Getting Better Acquainted on iTunes, SoundCloud, those kind of places. One thing that really helps the show if you have some time would be for you to leave a rating and a review on iTunes uh, telling people about the show and why you like it. If you have money to spare and you want to support what I do then you can donate to the show via the PayPal link that you can find on the SoundCloud page. If you want to support the family tree you can sign up to the patreon that would be so helpful because we're making the second season and so we need a budget we need to pay people and so you could help us to do that but remember 
there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.